get out uh, God's Word and open it up to uh, Exodus chapter 7. Maybe you have uh, the paper bound or some app that has uh, the Bible on it. I'll be reading mostly from the ESV translation if you are uh, on an app and trying to choose between a couple different ones. <clears throat> and uh, <laughs> uh, we're going to try to cover all the plagues today. So all 10 of them, I warned you last week um, uh, that that's what we'll be trying to do. Next week we're taking a little break uh, and uh, Weston's going to... Uh, preach a uh, topical message on marriage. Uh, next weekend's also our. <laughs> next weekend's also our. Uh, he's his own hype man. Uh, is her is our marriage uh, uh, seminar retreat, whatever we're calling that thing. Um, so that is coming up, and so I thought, you know, I didn't want to break up the plagues. Uh, a couple reasons to do half now, uh, half in two weeks. Uh, one, because I think uh, sometimes when you do that, and you do that even in some with the, uh, with the Ten Commandments and different passages of Scripture, that you, uh, you end up missing the forest for the trees. You dive so deeply down on this one topic or subject, um, and you fail to kind of pan out and see, okay, what is God really trying to show us in this passage of Scripture? Uh, also, if you get a little weary as we're covering uh, five chapters of Scripture today, um, when my kids kind of give, uh, give me beef uh, when our devotions at home run long, I just go back to the Old Testament and remind them when they stood and heard Ezra read the Word of God for three days straight, and, um, and they're a little more quiet about that. So I need to remind us, too, that the Word of God is profitable, every word of it, um, and God wants to speak to us today through this very text. Let me pray for us as, um, as we prepare to jump in. And if you would, from where you are, um, would you just pray and ask that God would speak to you? God, we love you and we thank you for your, um, for your mercy and for your grace. We thank you for your word. The Holy Spirit's work of illuminating and bringing conviction and application um, from your word. I pray today as many of us are um, in different places in life and in our faith journey, I pray, Father, that you would bring conviction where it's needed. I pray that you would bring encouragement and life and there would be a life about your people as we meet together and we hear your word read and taught um, I pray that uh, your peace and your joy would be um, on display, and we, your people. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. To kind of catch you up real quickly, and not to spend a whole lot of time doing that, but uh, God has called Moses um, from the burning bush to go and deliver his people, uh, the people of Israel, who are under Egyptian uh, oppression. They're being, uh, they've been slaves for now uh, 400 years to uh, the nation of Egypt. And as, they, uh, as he goes, Moses uh, goes in with his brother uh, Aaron. Um, and Moses and Aaron go in. And Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, the most powerful man in the known world at this time, refuses to obey the Lord. And he even says... Uh, 
back a few chapters, I think in chapter 5, at the first request of Moses, he said, who is the Lord that I should obey him or that I should listen? And it's the same question that all of us have to wrestle with again, um, even today, even right now, who is the Lord? And what is his call upon my life? So Pharaoh, as predicted, refuses to let Israel go, and the war of the gods begin. The plagues, like many invasions, gradually escalate. They build an intensity. You're going to see the early plagues affect everybody, and they can be reproduced by uh, Pharaoh's uh, magicians, whereas the later ones only affect Egypt, and they cannot be reproduced. But they also escalate in a literal and geographical sense. The first group of three plagues strikes the water, the ground, as the Nile bleeds. Frogs rise up from the water. Dust turns to gnats. The second group strikes the flesh. Swarms of flies. Really, that's uh, horse flies. The death of livestock. Human skin being covered in boils. And then the third group moves even higher up, up to the skies, bringing Destruction through weather, bringing locusts from the east, wind, and even blackening out the sun. So one commentator puts it this way, if the ancient world were a three-story house, the earth, the waters beneath, and the heavens above, God brought destruction to each story and humiliated the deities that governed each one of those. The Egyptian gods were ferreted out and removed from the house like a pest or an infestation from cellar to the rafter. And that's what we're going to see. Let's jump in in Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 14. Exodus chapter 7 and verse 14. There was really another, it wasn't a plague, but the little display we looked at last week with the snakes, kind of the first wonder that God does in front of Pharaoh. His magicians repeated, if you remember, and then... uh, Moses' staff eats up uh, the, the, the snakes of the others. And then it moves into this. In verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out of the water to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take your staff, take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying... Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far, you have not obeyed. Verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is the Nile, and it will turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Skip down to verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went to his house. He did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water from the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. I really encourage you to take notes of this as we're going to cover all of these plagues. Um, There's a place on the back of your little connection guide. You can write these down in the groups of three that we, uh, uh, three groups of three, and then uh, the last as the Passover. The first is the Nile is turning, uh, is turning blood red. Most theologians agree 
that uh, the Nile itself did not turn into blood, but it turned blood red. Also, like the prophecies would talk about uh, the, the moon turning as blood. It's not actually turning into human blood that uh, coagulates like, uh, like, you know, like this in our bodies, but it is a reference to the color or nature of it. And it was of such degree that, that they could not drink of it or they would get sick, uh, certainly. And it even talks about how, you know, the, all the existing exposed water, even those in buckets and other things, were turned into this um, blood-like color that, uh, that, that fish and things could not live. It would not bring any satisfaction. And I want you to notice, too, as we're talking about this, as these escalate and get more and more serious, we see that uh, by their secret arts, the magicians of Pharaoh's court were able to duplicate what Moses did. They couldn't stop it, but they could duplicate it as if anyone needed any more blood water at this point. Later, as the plagues do intensify, they're not going to be able to match them. Notice also, and we talked uh, at length uh, last week about Pharaoh's hardened heart. These things continue to happen, and Pharaoh is not even, he does not even care. Uh, His heart is hardened. Certainly, and it says here he didn't even take this to heart. This was just really no big deal. Seven days later, we get the frogs. In uh, chapter 8, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all of your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that come up into your house and into your bedroom and onto your bed and into the houses of your servants and of your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. Now this plague's kind of getting a little more gross, right? Now this plague, um, as well as the one before it, were aimed directly at the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. Some theologians believe every one of these plagues are aimed at the uh, Egyptian deities, and we're going to go into some of that in a little bit. But they lived in a polytheistic culture, worshiping many gods, most of them demonic in nature. They had gods for the Nile and the sun and fertility, and they had the different images that represent them. The image of the frog that they worshiped, I'm going to show a picture of you later, was the god Heket. It was a, a person with the head of a frog. And the uh, Egyptians would not have been much bothered by this. They worshipped frogs anyway, except for the fact that there were so many of them. In verse 8, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Hey, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 13, skip down there. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out in the houses and the courtyards and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Don't you think it did? You're going to see a few things like this in here, just descriptive words that just made me laugh as I read them. Don't you think big mounds of frogs would certainly do that? But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The third, gnats everywhere. Chapter 8, starting in verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beasts. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. 
The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. As you notice, the plague's getting stronger. The magicians with their secret arts not being able to produce this. You notice also that there's people in Pharaoh's court that are recognizing God, the God of the Hebrews, as the one true supreme God. And they are, in their advice, giving to, uh, giving to Pharaoh, their leader, saying, listen, uh, maybe we should do what they say. This is the hand of God. Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. The next group of three, flies, livestock, and, uh, and boils. In verse 20, then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else. If you will not let the people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and on your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I'm the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. And there came a great swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh and to his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt was ruined by the swarms of flies. And this is not talking about the little picnic flies. These are horse flies, most likely, uh, that are biting and stinging. Notice the distinction here. Not only can the magicians not reproduce these plagues, but there's the division as to where they will go there's some little God-ordained uh, force field around the land of Goshen where the Israelites live. And the flies aren't bothering them. The fifth plague, livestock decimated. Chapter 9, verses. Uh, let's start in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, the flocks. But the Lord again will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Skip to verse 7. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. They're intensifying. The six is boils breaking out. In verse 8, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of the Pharaoh. This was probably one of the places where the bricks were being made. Remember uh, in Pharaoh's anger before that he told them they had to make bricks without straw. Some of the soot laying there he asked Moses to grab it, throw it up into the air as a sign, not using the staff, not even using Aaron now. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out and sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. And so they took the soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out and sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and all of the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as he had 
the Lord had spoken to Moses. This strike you odd in verse 11 that the magicians at first couldn't mimic the plagues. They could mimic them, then they couldn't stop them. And then they couldn't mimic them anymore. And then they knew that it was the hand of God. And now the magicians cannot even show up because of the boils that are on them. The last set of three. The hailstorm, the locust, and then darkness. Skip to, uh, let's see, chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on the people so that you will know that there is none like me in all the earth. Highlight that if you uh, write in your Bible, take notes there. None like me in all the earth. We'll probably come back to that. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause a heavy hail to fall, such as never been seen in Egypt from the day that it was founded until now. Now therefore send Get your livestock and all that you have in the field in a safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and livestock in the field. Notice there's a warning for them to be saved. And Pharaoh's own servants, his royal court, including some of the magicians that were trying to duplicate the movements of God early on in, in the book of Exodus, are now believing God and doing just as the prophet of God, Moses, is warning them to do. After the plague happens and the hail falls, skip to verse 27, then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned, the Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. So you see he's got a little contrition. This is what Paul in the book of uh, Corinthians would call worldly sorrow though. Not, uh, not a grief that leads to repentance. Skip to chapter 10 and verse 3. A locust invasion. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. And they will cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. They shall eat whatever is left after the hail. And they shall eat of every tree that is yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and your houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers or grandfathers have ever seen from the day they came to earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said, Go, serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Always one more condition with Pharaoh. God, I'll obey you, but these are my conditions. A lesson we should make note of for our own hearts, putting conditions on God never works. 
Verse 9, and Moses said, we will go with our young and old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts. So they will come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. Then the last of the three groups, the plague of darkness. Of course, you can guess what happens again, right? That Pharaoh is unrelenting. Verse 21, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt and darkness, a darkness to be felt. That's got to be really dark if you feel it. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herd remain behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take them, take of them to serve the Lord our God. For we do not know what we must serve the Lord with until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and wouldn't let him go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me and take care never to see my face again. For on the day that you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Again, Pharaoh still trying to bargain with God through Moses. How about just your men? Okay, you can take your men, women, and children, but not your livestock. Pharaoh is just so arrogant and so proud. His heart so hardened toward God. As we read through those, did you notice that every one of the senses of the Egyptians would have been affected? Their taste by drinking the rotten water, their sense of smell with the dead and rotting fish and heaps of frogs, their hearings with the swarms of flies and locusts. If you've ever heard our version of a locust, a cicada in the backyard and how loud they are, imagine so many that you couldn't see daylight. You couldn't step anywhere without stepping on them. That's how many there were. Their sense of touch and feeling with boils covering their bodies. And finally, their sight with darkness that could be felt. And if this would not be enough, the last sign of the God of wonders and acts upon these people is the angel of death. Chapter 11, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague, more I will bring upon Pharaoh in Egypt and afterward he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Remember, this is what God had said several chapters before. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask, every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor, for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. The Egyptians are so tired of the Israelites being there, they're giving them all of their gold. Moreover, 
The man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even the firstborn of the slave girls behind the hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever be. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and, his, and Israel. And all of these servants shall come down to me and bow to me, saying, Get out, you and all your people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. The last and final plague is not really a plague at all. It's really the judgment of God on the country that killed his people by infanticide. If you remember back in chapters 1 and 2 that he, Pharaoh, was upset with the Israelites and they're growing in number and was fearful of them. And so he asked the midwives to kill all the boys as they're born. Of course, in God's providence, they didn't listened to Pharaoh, and so Pharaoh turned up the heat a little bit and then ordered a genocide of all of the little boys. If Basically, as an Egyptian, if you see a little boy running around, I want you to grab him, throw him in the Nile to his death. This is a pretty weighty text. There's no doubt. And as you look at it, and I've been wrestling with it, I just got a few things that I want us to consider this morning. First is that God is not mocked. Again, remember back in Exodus 5 when Pharaoh hears the words from Moses and in almost a mocking and sarcastic way, he responds, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? And now he knows. He's the God of the heavens, of the earth, of the land and sea and everything that walks on it. He is the creator God of the universe. Who is the Lord? That is who he is. These ten plagues, one on top of another, are showing Pharaoh exactly who God is. God is not mocked. Many people act like God as some sort of substitute teacher with a bunch of threats but no authority. Or like a parent who counts to three and never does anything. Maybe you've been guilty, as I have, of uh, over-threatening your kids. Hey, if you do that one more time, no devices or media for the week. And then you remember it's spring break and they're going to be with you all week. Maybe we'll find some grace in that punishment for me. Listen, that is not who God is. He is God. Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 9.10, Psalms 111, verse 10, says that the beginning of wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. Just a little bit of wisdom that you might gain comes from fearing the Lord. And not fearing as if uh, you're afraid to approach him, but the word awe, that there was to be such awe as the people of God 
related to God himself. So much so that the first couple of the Ten Commandments were going to be about treating God's name with awe and respect, fear. And here's where I think most of us go wrong. We confuse God's patience with weakness. God's grace and mercy, friends, are not weakness. He is a God who keeps every promise and fulfills every threat. Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8, Do not be deceived, Paul says to the church at Galatia. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God is not mocked. And in the age we live in today, even in the church culture, we have something in us that is... um, It is not the fear of God. It is something else entirely. The second thing I think I see here, and there probably could be many more than these three that I'm going to share with you, is that there's only one true God. God keeps saying, maybe you notice it as we read, so that you may know, so that you may know, example, In Exodus 7, verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Every one of these acts of wonder that God accomplishes before all the people to see, before he does it, he says, listen, the reason I'm doing this so that you would not be confused is so that you might not have any doubt in your heart or your mind who's really in charge here. God is the one true God. Every other God or every other way that we may follow ultimately will lead to destruction. Again, the Egyptians were polytheistic. They served many gods. They had a god for everything. And they sacrificed to them and they prayed to them. And some of them had real demonic power. Some of their gods were actually uh, groups of demons that they worshipped. But all that they worshipped, they were certainly not God. God of the Bible, the supreme creator God. They were not Yahweh God. I did a little research and pulled up. Uh, I thought, well, you know, I'll share with you all the gods that we know that they worship, that we have drawings and history of. And uh, there's more than 50, so I can't even, I'll just share with you like the A's, the ones that start with A. I think I have these on the slide. These are the Egyptian gods. Acre, he's the uh, God of the earth, the helper of the dead. His symbol was two lion heads. Ammon was uh, the god of life and reproduction. He was a man's body with a uh, ram's head. Anubis uh, was the one that took the dead to judgment. He had a jackal head. Apis, or happy, ensured fertility. He was a sacred bull. Ammon was another sun god. We talked about him uh, last week a little bit. Adam was a primordial creature god with a serpent head and a human body. Again, we could go on and on and on. Hecate, uh, down the line a little bit, was the, the frog that they worshipped, and we saw what happened there. Again, there's 50 more that we could read. 
Uh, gods of the Nile, gods of the moon, gods of justice, protector of newborns, protector of your destiny, the god of virility and reproduction, god of the eye of the sun, goddess of upper Egypt, goddess of lower Egypt, nut the sky goddess. They even had one they called the creator god. Ra, which you're probably familiar with, was the supreme deity at one point. He was the god of the sun. All of these they worshipped. None of these could provide relief when the real god, the god of the Bible, showed up. Now let's be honest. We don't have a list like that of the little images of the gods that we created, that we worship. But as a matter of fact, most people in our city would actually say that they worship the God of the Bible. But their doctrine and their lives often don't match up. We live in a culture where we worship gods of materialism and appearance, gods of prestige and power and fame, gods of comfort and entertainment. And on and on we could go. Our gods might not be golden statues of frogs and bulls, but they are cars in our driveways we often can't afford, upgraded houses that cause us to live in debt up to our eyeballs, trips that we can't afford. Some of us are worshiping at the altar of economic success. Instead of seeking first the kingdom of God, we're seeking first to grow our bank accounts. Others are worshiping false gods of comfort and control. We'll do anything to achieve comfort. And when life gets difficult, we shake our fist at God, acting like he didn't show up when, when we thought he should show up. But it's really not God that we're worshiping. We're worshiping ourselves. And anything that would cause us pain or discomfort, we think God has fallen asleep at the will. For others, maybe in this room, because we have our doctrine right, our God really is our own morality. We're basing our righteousness on the things that we do right and not on God's grace and our belief in that by faith. Church, God's demand on our lives is full surrender. Did you notice how many times Pharaoh again tries to bargain with God like he's at some kind of flea market? God, why don't you just give me a little relief, right? And, uh, and, and I'll do half of what you had said. And before we just get uh, so angry with, uh, with Egypt for being that way, that is who we are. We are the Egyptians. Way more than the Israelites, we're the Egyptians. We think because of the success we have or the nation that we live in, that we should be the one praised for the things that we had and not God himself. That we worship created things instead of the creator. Listen, God's not going to haggle with you. He clearly says, seek first the kingdom of God. You can't come back to him and say, okay, God, how about Sundays and 10% of my income? God says, no, that's not what I'm asking you. I'm asking you to make me Lord of all or not Lord at all. And to be honest, that's really how the enemy works. He tries to deceive us so that we would make our lives about going after things that really don't matter at all in the end. Satan's goal is not to get you to do bad things. His goal is to keep you from Jesus. And if he can do that through your own morality, then he's, then he's done what he came to do. 
If he can deceive you by uh, working harder at your job than you do in pursuing the heart of your family and certainly the heart of God, then he is winning. There is only one true God and friend, you are not him. We talked last week just briefly that God is a jealous God who does not share his glory with others. Look at Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to any carved idols. The last thing is that God's patience precedes his judgment. God's patience precedes his judgment. And so should ours. As I looked at this passage again and again and read so much about it, I've been up to my eyeballs and frogs, it seems like, this week, trying to see, okay, this is not just John 3.16, like we're preaching here. How do we make sense of this, God? I know that every word of yours is profitable for us, but how is it? What does this passage teach us about God? And as much as this... Uh, passage is a picture of God's judgment it is a far greater picture of God's patience and I've never seen that before I've always thought this is just the judgment of God enacted on people who act defiantly in front of him but did you know again that they had been slaves for 400 years and God in his patience did not act and yet he extended grace and mercy in the more recent history again there's been infanticide and genocide And yet God doesn't just smite these people. He even says that. Hey, listen, if I wanted to, I could bring pestilence upon you in an instant. But I'm not doing that. I'm doing this with warning. As a matter of fact, the two plagues that would bring death on people, hail, and the angel of death, God warns them. Hey, at this time tomorrow, hail's going to come. And if you're going to be standing outside, you're going to be killed. So you need to make sure you get inside. And then you know, and we're going to talk more in a couple weeks, the angel of death and Passover and what it's included. He told them, remember to sprinkle the blood of an innocent lamb on your doorpost and the angel of death will pass by. And not just the Israelites did that, a lot of the Egyptians did. As you read through the book of Psalms, you'll see that it will talk about the groups of people who are there, that they will be the Israelites, um, there will be the Levites, which was the priestly order, And then it'll include a group called the God-fearers. And that's the group of mostly foreigners, mostly made up of Egyptians, who saw God do these wonders. And even then, God is being a blessing to the nations through this one nation of Israel. Scripture tells us that some of the Egyptians listened. Some of Pharaoh's own court listened. God's patience precedes his judgment. That is the heart of God. How many times do we read in Scripture that God is slow to anger? Again, don't confuse his patience with weakness. Ezekiel 33 kind of gives us a little more insight to the heart of God. In verse 11, say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, 
Turn back from your evil ways or you will die, O house of Israel. What does God say? It's, he's not some uh, wicked cosmic wonder in the sky who just wants to zap people. Even saying here, I, have no, I give no pleasure in the death of the wicked. What about in Jonah 4? Do you remember that? I don't think I have this on the screen, but remember Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? And he was saying, God, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Then he finally goes, preaches a few words of a sermon. The whole nation gets saved. It's pretty miraculous. Something I pray for for our city all the time. Chapter 4 and verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? And this is why I made haste to flee to Tarsus. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Do you see the patience of God? Do you see his mercy? Let me bring us to a close by looking at one more passage, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God's patience precedes his judgment, certainly so, and we are living right now in a time and a period of grace where God is willing one more person to turn from their hard hearts and turn to him. But friends, let's not confuse his patience with his weakness. We sometimes think I've gotten away with this for so long. This sin that I've embraced. That God must, must not care much about it. He must not care about my sin. So I'm going to go on living in this sin. But that's not the truth. And the Bible promises that your sin will eventually be found out. Everything will one day be exposed. But God is patient full of mercy, and Scripture says we should run to him now. Today is the day of salvation. We should repent of our sins now. We should run to the foot of the cross now. His patience preceding his judgment is seen in no greater way than looking at Jesus. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. I think our kids learned this verse Many of you know it too in John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have, every eternal life, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is judgment. 
The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. The very heart of God is that you would find salvation in Jesus. And if we can be honest, just for a minute, we live in a very uh, church culture and a lot of us play a lot of religious games. And we come in and we do the dance and we stand and we sing and we shake hands and we go throughout our motions, never, never really acknowledging God as God, his sovereignty over our life, the seriousness that he looks at sin with, we make excuses for. Matthew says there's going to be many in the last day that stand before God in judgment and say, but look at all these things I did in your name. Look at all these religious works. Jesus is going to look at them and say, I never knew you. My question for us today is not when you walk some aisle at a VBS, but do you have current faith in Jesus Christ? That he is the Lord and Savior? Your personal Lord and Savior? Not that you said the right words as if it's some kind of incantation, but that you right now, current faith and trust in him and desire to submit under his lordship in all things. That's what it means to really follow him. Those are the kind of disciples that Jesus called unto himself, not the kind that played religious games. As a matter of fact, he got so angry with the Pharisees because they played the religious games. He said the outside of you are just so clean, but the inside is just rotten. And I think that message is speaking to us even today. The call for us to place our faith and trust in Jesus as our only hope. It would be pastoral malpractice not to give you an opportunity to do such things even today. I'm going to pray for us in a minute. We're going to take communion right after that, which is this great sign of the death of Jesus. All of the wrath of God against us because of our sin. And yet Jesus stepped in as our atoning sacrifice. The wrath of God came upon him. And Jesus gave us the right of sonship. What a beautiful picture in communion as we celebrate his death, burial, and resurrection. Before we do that, I'm just going to ask you to pray right where you're at. and I'm not going to do the asking you to raise hands, none of that. I just want you to do business with God where you're at. Maybe you've been playing religious games for a long time. And you hear this message of God's patience before his judgment. His grace and mercy on full display. But he promises there will come a day where we will give an account for our sins. And the wrath of God will have fallen on Jesus in our place. Or it will one day fall on us if we're not in Jesus. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus in here. And your faith is certainly genuine, but because some things have happened to you, even unbeknownst to you, you just didn't even know your heart has grown hardened. It's been a long time since you heard God speak, and today's a day of repentance that you would Confess that sin of unbelief and bitterness and you would give it to him. 
You would pray even as David did that God would restore the joy of your salvation even today. I'm going to be in the back to pray with you in a minute. I want to pray over you right now. God, you are a good God. Your word tells us that every good and perfect gift that we ever experience come from you. The laughter of our friends, the joy we see in our kids, all the good things that we experience this side of heaven, those things come from you and in heaven awaits even a greater table for us. But Lord, your, your word is also very clear. That without us placing our faith and trust in you, your son Jesus, who died on the cross on our behalf, there will be no way to escape the ultimate reality that is to come, which is separation from you for eternity. So I pray over our church. I pray over my friends. Lord, as they check their own hearts, Lord, I pray that uh, their faith would be evident. Lord, that you would be very near to us. Lord, that we would remember in just a moment as we take communion that you died in our place and that we would sing together in just a moment from deep gratitude for all that you have done for us through Jesus. It's in your mighty name that we pray, amen.